Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. In this episode, we'll hear renowned journalist and author Fintan O'Toole's First Thought Talk, recorded in Galway in November 2018. O'Toole ruthlessly dissects the psychology and politics of Brexit, as outlined in his internationally best-selling book, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. It is delightful to hear an intelligent Irishman explain the English to themselves. Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Thank you very much for, for coming. Um, yeah, I, I was listening to, uh, or actually I was reading Boris Johnson's resignation letter last July when he did the um, what has become the characteristic motion of the hard Brexiteers, which is the crab-like sideways crawl away from power and responsibility and back towards the comfort of the sidelines. And uh, what he, one of the things he said in his letter was that um, the dream is dying. And it just struck me to ask, what is the dream? Um, it's an odd way to think about a live political project, which is supposed to have real groundings in economics and politics and law. And there was something uh, maybe inadvertently truthful, it seemed, about Johnson talking about the dream. So I thought it would be worth maybe just trying to think about um, what I call English dream time. You know, what is the mentality that has led us to this extraordinary situation? Um, it's a question, oddly enough, that most of the British media don't ask. I mean, they're understandably in many ways, they're very much tied up in the process of Brexit. I mean, thinking about the mechanics of it, the who's fighting whom, the ins and outs, the negotiations, the votes. But oddly enough, not very much sort of standing back and saying the WTF question. You know, how did this happen? How, how did we get here? How does a normal, civilized, very prosperous, very privileged Western European democracy um, engage in this kind of self-harm. And so I just started trying to think about that question. Um, and as Katrina says, I, I, I ended up um, psychoanalyzing um, England, which was not actually my intention at all. Um, but it's where you kind of are led when you start trying to think about this. Um, and I started about thinking about an emotion, which is in a way um, one of the more puzzling emotions, which is self-pity. Um, there are those who would say self-pity is not a respectable category for analysis, but I would proffer as a counter-argument the entire country and Western music industry, <laughs> uh, which would not exist otherwise. Um, and uh, I was just reading... Um, Herbert Spencer, who, who was a kind of pioneering theorist of psychology in the late 19th century, and he was puzzling over this emotion. He was kind of doing you know, analysis of different emotions. And uh, it was this emotion that he, he, he variously calls pleasurably painful sentiment, the luxury of grief and self-pity. It seems possible that this sentiment, which makes a sufferer wish to be alone with his grief, which of course is what Brexit is, 
and makes him resist all distraction from it, may arise from dwelling on the contrast between his own worth as he estimates it and the treatment he has received. If he feels he has deserved much while he has received little, and still more if instead of good there has come evil, the consciousness of this evil is qualified by the consciousness of worth, made pleasurably dominant by the contrast. One who contemplates his own affliction as undeserved necessarily contemplates his own merit. There is an idea of much withheld and a feeling of implied superiority to those who withhold it. And this just seemed to me to be a very apt description of the sort of emotional complex, if you like, the structure of feeling around Brexit. Um, we tend to think of self-pity as being about low self-esteem, but actually it's about very high self-esteem. You know, you, 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 in order to really feel great self-pity, you have to feel that you deserve much better than you're getting. Um, I don't know if any of you, well, you're all very young people, you wouldn't remember, but um, Ray Galton died recently, the great um, British screenwriter, Galton Simpson, who did so many of those great uh, pioneering uh, British TV shows. One of the things they did was Hancock's Last Half Hour, or not Last Half, like Hancock's Half Hour, as it was called. Uh, if you look back on those Hancock, um, their half-hour dramas, and Hancock is sort of Mr. England in a way, in, in, in the 1960s. And they're perfect three-act dramas. They're only 30 minutes, but the first part of it is um, a sort of hugely inflated sense of himself. So he always has this kind of grandiose ambition. And the second part of it is sort of the disappointments of that ambition. And then the third part is him wallowing in self-pity. That's, that's <laughs> basically the structure. And... In a sense, there's, there's something very Brexit-like about this. It, it, it sort of touches on something that I think is, is, is very much there. So where does this come from? Um, and how can we understand what's happened? I think we have to look, first of all, at um, the most obvious question, in a way, which isn't greatly being asked, which is, in order to do Brexit, you have to first imagine yourself to be overwhelmingly and unjustly oppressed by the European Union. So you have to start thinking of the fact that you are not a prosperous, modern, reasonably powerful democracy, but you're actually the victim of a tyranny. And this has two sort of self-contradictory aspects of it which self-pity captures. So one is the, the high opinion of yourself. And the high opinion is rooted, of course, in an imperial past. An idea that Britain is exceptional, particularly England is exceptional, uh, because it has ruled the world and therefore deserves better than being a normal European country. And the second aspect of this then is the, 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 the self-pity comes from the sense that other people are refusing to recognize this superiority. Uh, so you have this kind of double nature of Brexit, which is part of the reason why it's so incoherent. One is that it wants to be, in one way, a kind of recapitulation of empire, to go back to the idea of, well, global Britain is the phrase for it now, which means really Britain is not a European country, it's a global country. It's at the center of a global network um, of trade, 
in which everybody else will kind of just look to Britain as the, the center of, of, of this network again, which is really another way of thinking about empire. Um, so it wants to be that, but it also then wants to be the opposite. It, it wants to think of itself as having been a colony, not a colonizer, but a colony. Why? Because in order to get the energy to throw off this oppression, you have to sort of imagine yourself to have been tyrannized uh, and indeed to have been uh, taken over and invaded. So as Katrina says, there, there are kind of two big things going on here. Um, and it, it may seem ludicrous. Um, I was arguing uh, with a very uh, distinguished English academic the other day um, about, you know, I was talking about the Second World War and I thought she was going to say, actually, you know, Second World War, do you have to go back that far, really? Is that not, you know, that's really quite a long time ago. And she said, no, 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 you have to go back to the Norman invasion. <laughs> so maybe I'm doing, I'm doing okay with Second World War. But, but if you listen to the rhetoric, even now, if you listen to the recent Tory party conference, for example, the number of references to the Dunkirk spirit, you know, the constant reference to Spitfires, to Churchill, to all of this kind of stuff, it's still there. And why is it still there? And I think... It's still there because, as Katrina mentioned, one of the arguments of the book is that um, the British experience is unique. It's the one way it is exceptional, actually. I don't think it's ever happened to a country before that you win a major war, in, in many ways the major war, the existential war of the Second World War. They're on the winning side. They didn't win it all on their own, at least sometimes you would think they did. But, you know, they are nevertheless a really important part of de defeating Nazism. And yet, within 10 years, you know, you have the three Axis powers, Italy, Germany, and Japan, are all booming. They're all doing better than Britain was doing by the mid-1950s. So the sense of a grudge, the sense of we didn't get what we deserved out of winning the war, means that in a way they're kind of stuck psychologically with it. They've never really got over winning the war. <laughs> it's, um, it's extraordinary in, in, in many ways. So that's part of the complex, I think, of, of the way Brexit plays out. Um, one of the things I started looking at from the book is this extraordinary um, English tradition of thrillers, counterfactual thrillers, in which Britain didn't win the war but lost the war. So you have things like Glenn Dayton's SSGB, which was filmed, of course, on, on television just coming up to Brexit. Uh, Robert Harris's Fatherland, for example, you know, huge selling things. Uh, there's, there's a lot more of them. Um, but they, they imagine this sort of idea that actually, you know, we, we surrendered after, at Dunkirk. Or we, you know, the D-Day landing was a disaster and therefore, you know, the Nazis invaded us instead. And we were taken over. And this sort of dark fantasy. And it's, a, it's an odd kind of fantasy because one of the attractions of it, oddly enough, is the idea that actually, maybe it would have been better if we lost the war. And maybe it would have been better because the Germans took over anyway. The European Union is really just a German front. And so we beat the Germans, but then they reversed it. They, they, they took over by sucking us into the European Union. It's a common market. They've actually take, taken us over. Um, and in this kind of dark imagining, it's as if it's worse than the Nazis, actually, in a way, because at least with the Nazis, you could fight them. You know, Nicholas Ridley, who was one of Margaret Thatcher's closest political friends and allies uh, and was Secretary of State for the Environment in, in, in her government, said in 1990, you know, 
I'd rather go back to the war because at least we could fight them. At least we could, you know, we could resist. Whereas being taken over insidiously by the Germans through the European Union is much worse. So you have this kind of that dark fantasy of invasion. And the other dark fantasy you have is, is, is this dark fantasy of, as I said, being colonized, you know, which links in a lot with the rhetoric of anti-immigrant um, sentiment. Enoch Powell, who's a figure who's kind of not acknowledged, he's the ghost at the Feast of Brexit. I mean, Powell is really the person who kind of puts all this stuff together very, very powerfully in the 1960s. But it's this idea that not only is the empire gone, but it's actually worse than that because the empire is coming to us. These black and brown people who used to be our subjects are coming to take us over. So you have this kind of strange psychology uh, of, of victimhood. Um, and it is, in a way, it's sort of fringe stuff. It's the sort of stuff that should have stayed just out there, you know, in some kind of neurotic um, basement, you know, without, without really kind of emerging into major political reality. Why does it emerge? One of the reasons it emerges is a sort of brilliance um, in giving substance to this sense of oppression. I, I don't know if, if you watch any of the news programs and you watch Vox Pops, you know, they stop people. Even now, like even the last couple of weeks in the Midlands English Town, when they say, how did you vote? And they say, leave. Would you still vote leave? Yes. Why? The European Union is always interfering with us. You know, it's this sense of interference and you say, what is it? What, what exactly are you talking about? And of course, what they're talking about is, is fiction. You know, it's, it's the creation of a highly developed, in, incessant set of ideas around the fact that, that there are those people over there in Brussels and they are stopping you from doing really important things. What are the really important things? Um, they're banning donkey rides on beaches. <laughs> well, no, they're not. Like, um, they're forcing our fishermen, our manly fishermen, to wear hairnets while they're fishing. Right? Well, they're not, of course. Um, and, and Boris Johnson is a really important figure in this. Um, Johnson's actually more important as a journalist even than as a political figure because he's the person, as a journalist, who invents the idea that you can make a journalistic career out of doing this stuff. Johnson is sent to Brussels, having been fired from the London Times for lying. Now, it's quite hard to get fired, you know, <laughs> uh, as a gentleman. You know, he's an, e an Etonian, an Oxford man. You know, you don't get fired. But they fired him because he was so bad. I mean, just so outrageously mendacious. He's immediately hired by the Telegraph and sent to Brussels. Because the lying, that's, that's what we want. You know, it's fine. And he's funny and he can make this stuff up. And his first big campaign, I kid you not, is about the prawn cocktail-flavoured crisp. <laughs> you know, the, the role of the prawn cocktail-flavoured crisp in Brexit is, will, should be the subject of great thesis in the future. <laughs> Boris discovers that there's a, a regulation being brought in by the European Union that says if it's a potato product, it, you can't add more than 50% sugar to it. And the British Crisp Manufacturers Association said, but look, we, we make all these exotic flavored crisps and we are full of sugar. <laughs> um, and there's a bit of a little bit of coverage, but Boris, got a kind of genius, you know, says, forget about, you know, exotic flavored crisps, like a prawn cocktail flavored crisp. It's really tangible. It's something, you know. And he starts a campaign about 
the interference that Brussels is doing by stopping us feeding our children prawn cocktail flavored crisp. And this is a huge success in journalistic terms. So what he's trying to do is what every journalist is trying to do. He's trying to get off page 13, which is where Brussels news is onto page one, right? And he discovers you can just keep doing this. You can just keep making this stuff up. And then, of course, everybody sees the success of it and it becomes a kind of competitive journalistic um, enterprise, you know, to think up the most outrageous thing there. The EU is standardizing the size of condoms, which, of course, EU-sized condoms would not be big enough for English men. <laughs> uh, the EU is banning, uh, if, if you have a sex toy and you want to buy a new one, you've got to bring back the old one or they won't let you, you know. Like, there's some EU regulation about recycling of electronic products, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of brilliant in a way. But it's actually, one of the strange things about it is that it's, it's very camp. You know, it's, it's, it's really like a sort of musical sketch. Or even at its most extreme, it's like Monty Python, you know, where you take something tiny and you blow it up and you exaggerate it into this example of how your democracy, your sovereignty, your freedom, your very national identity is being challenged by all of these kinds of things. And the strange thing about it is that it's, it's, it's very knowing. You know, by, by camp, I mean that it's all in quotation marks. You know, I mean, everybody knows it's not true. You can still go into the shop and buy a packet of prawn cocktail flavored crisps. You can still see the donkey rides on the beach. You know, you know the fishermen aren't wearing hairnets. You know, it's, it's a sort of strange interference with people's sense of reality. It creates this kind of third space between reality and fiction. And... One of the interesting things about it, I, how am I, I'm, I should finish off soon. And, no, you're good, you've got yeah, we'll, we'll at least five minutes. minutes. Um, so one of the interesting things about it is that it, 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 it sort of melds, why, why does it work so well? And it works so well because it takes something that's very deep in the English psyche and it twists it. And the thing that's really deep in the English psyche is heroic failure. George Orwell, whom Katrina mentioned, pointed this out in 1940 or 1941, there's a great essay about this, but saying, isn't this weird that all of the poems that English school children know about their history are all about screw-ups, all about, you know, failures? And he was writing this in the context of Dunkirk, you know, the, the sort of mystery. I mean, Churchill, for example, couldn't, just couldn't get his head around the fact that people were valorizing Dunkirk. You know, he said, wars aren't won by retreats, you know, and evacuations. How, how, how come this has become such a sort of moment of, of heroism? And of course, it's a moment of heroism because it fits in with a whole kind of history of taking failure and making it heroic. Um, and and uh, in a way, this goes back to, obviously, to Scott of the Antarctic, for example, the Charge of the Light Brigade, Gordon of Khartoum, you know, all of these kind of figures. And, of course, Dunkirk very much plays into that as well. Um, but heroic failure is very, very interesting because it's the sort of thing you can only do as a sort of national pastime if you're actually very powerful. No nation is going to celebrate its screw-ups if it's not actually running the world. Because the screw-up becomes kind of attractive in that sense. Because you can, what you can say then is, we suffered too. You know, it's not just that we conquered the world and took over other countries 
and inflicted ourselves on, you know, Africa and, and Asia and elsewhere. It's that actually in doing this, we suffered. So you valorize the pain, you valorize the sort of sense that actually, you know, and when we were suffering, we didn't complain about it. So the whole point of heroic failure as a way, as a kind of cultural form is the stiff upper lip, of course, you know, is that um, we die, we suffer, and our character is shown by the way we suffer. We don't complain. We get on with it. The greatest um, expression of this is, is uh, of course, Captain Oates, who is Scott of the Antarctic's um, colleague. You know, when, they're, when they're, they realize that they're trapped in these tents and they can't go on and they're all going to die, um, and Oates walks out and he says, I am going out now and I may be some time. You know, it's that sort of understatement. And what happens with the sort of Brexit mentality is it takes all that stuff about pain and suffering and valorizing the pain and suffering, saying this is, this is a good thing because it's where we show our real English character. But it lets in the very thing that heroic failure traditionally kept out, which was self-pity. So it now turns it into, instead of being playing down all the suffering, it turns it right around and makes it into an absolutely kind of camping up of, of our pain, our suffering, our victimhood. Um, the, I, I, I was thinking in the book about camp, you know, and, and the, the greatest expression of English camp was an actor called Ernest Heisiger, who was um, actually in some of those camp classics. He's in The Bride of Frankenstein, and some, you know, all those kind of movies from the 1930s. Uh, but he, he fought in the First World War, and he was, he was at, uh, I, I think it was Ypres, one of those really, really horrendous battles, and he was wounded, and he was seconded home. And he was at a dinner party in, in, in London, and uh, somebody says to him, oh, oh Wilfred, you know, what, what was, um, Ernest, sorry, sorry, Ernest, what was the Battle of Ypres like? And he said, oh, my dear, the noise, the people. <laughs> and it's sort of brilliant. You know, it's a, it's a sort of, you take suffering and you play it down. You just play it down. You say, well, you know, I'm not going there. I'm not going into the self-pity. I'm not going into the horror. That's the English way, you know, it's a sort of to pull back from it. But what the Brexit thing does is it does actually, it just turns this completely on its head. So it makes tiny, tiny, tiny things feel like they're enormous and like they're absolutely outrageous and intolerable. The whole point of this is it's, it's a game. It's a sort of performance. Um, and its irony is that it can only work so long as you're in the European Union. Because <laughs> otherwise, who else have you got to be oppressed by? <laughs> you know, if you need this invented oppression, if you need to feel that you're kind of suffering in this way, then your problem begins at the moment you win because that all disappears. First of all, the scapegoating disappears. One of the huge attractions of this, of course, for the a very reckless, irresponsible ruling class was that they were never to blame for anything. So if you project it all onto, onto Brussels, you don't have to take responsibility for the rising inequality, for the poverty, for the uh, bitter, bitter fracturing of, of, of British society. You don't have to take responsibility for any of that. It's all Brussels' fault. Three minutes, Fenton. So the scapegoat's gone. But even more than that, in a way, 
Brexit becomes a kind of revolution that can't do what revolutions do. So I think it is an authentic national revolution in a sense. This is the English national revolution. It's very much driven by English, the rising English national consciousness. And we know about national revolutions. I mean, we've, we've done them, you know. Um, and they're always kind of full of heroism, and then you have to kind of compromise and deal with the realities. That's just the way. But at least a national revolution does something. Right? So we set up a state, or, you know, you um, take the land from the aristocrats and you give it to the peasants, or you, you do something. The real problem for Brexit is, of course, that it cannot do anything because so much of what it was, it was predicated on is fictional. You can't bring back prawn cocktail flavored crisps into the shops because they're already there. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, you can't uh, right all these wrongs because they're wrongs that never really existed in the first place. And therefore, it's a, it's a very weird kind of phenomenon. So in a sense, it's, it's a genuine expression of, of a national desire for revolutionary change. You know, no question. I mean, it's a, in some ways, it's a very brave thing for people to have done. Um, it, it, it throws the existing order right up in the air. And that's not always a bad thing to do. But it does it with no outcome. It doesn't know what outcome it can possibly get um, because the mentality is predicated on imaginary oppression. And for imaginary oppression, you can only have imaginary liberation. Yeah. So it's an act of imaginary liberation where you're kind of saying, we're free now. Um, and, you know, we're waiting for God, oh, the two boys, one of them says, let's be, oh, we're, what, we're happy. What do we do now we're happy? <laughs> and it's like, what do we do now we're free? And of course, what's, hap what, what's been obvious is that the Brexiteers are completely incapable of doing anything. They won't take power. I mean, Boris couldn't even take power. He was the leader of the revolution, and he couldn't take power. He lasted a week as, as, as the king of the revolution, you know, less than a week, in fact, you know, the collapse of his, of his uh, attempt to become prime minister, which was the logical outcome. That's what happens in revolution. The leader of the revolution becomes the new power, and, and Boris couldn't become the power. The other Brexiteers have been unable to really take power. So what you end up with is, is something that nobody wants, that doesn't actually reflect any kind of act of liberation at all, um, and that simply uh, replaces first-class European Union membership with second-class European Union membership. It's not an epic, heroic, revolutionary outcome, to put it mildly. Um, so this is, this is why they're stuck. And one last thing just to say is that the strange thing about it then is that it cannot address any of its own causes. So there are undoubtedly real things that underlie Brexit. Um, and one of them, as I said, is this kind of rise of English national consciousness. You can see in all the surveys coming from, particularly from the turn of the century onwards, uh, English people asked about their national identity are saying English, not British. They are increasingly seeing that they don't think English interests are being properly represented by Westminster or by Whitehall. They're increasingly indifferent as to whether or not Scotland and Northern Ireland, in particular, are part of the Union. They're increasingly indifferent to the Union itself. And this is, this is showing up in the most recent surveys as well, very, very strongly. People who voted Leave don't care about the Union. Yet, one of the ironies of Brexit is that it can't address this. So what's it doing? You know, 
you've got Theresa May talking about the precious, precious union. We must rally around the union flag, even when what the English are actually saying is, actually, what about us? What about England? What about Englishness? So it ends up being, and again, this is showing my age, but uh, you remember these kind of Lassie movies or Skippy or although there was always an animal who, you know, there'd be somebody in distress and the animal would come to tell people, um, you know, and they say, what's he saying? What's he saying? You know, and, and then, the, you know, be, the animal would be going crazy, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the TV shows, they'd always kind of understand what the animal was saying and they followed. But this is, this is weird. It's like the English people are saying one thing and they're trying to make themselves heard. And the uh, uh, ruling class, by and large, is, is kind of saying, what are they saying? What are they saying? And running off in a completely different direction. You know? um, so it, it's, I suppose, it's not that Brexit is failing to be implemented. It's that it could not be implemented. It's that, in a sense, it died the moment it was born. The moment it became real, all the camp performative imagining of oppression disappeared. And what you're left with is just this um, lack of authority, this absence of any sense of where you're going. Um, and in fact, probably a deepening of the very problems of identity that led to it in the first place. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to First Thought. To watch the Q&A which followed Fintan O'Toole's First Thought talk, visit the talk section on Galway International Arts Festival's website on giaf.org.